Well, last week we uh, looked at what I like to call breakfast on the beach, where Jesus um, was on the beach and some of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection had seen him at least twice. And then on this third time, he's on the beach and they don't recognize him, but they're out fishing and Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw your nets and uh, on this side, and they look to see who it is, and they're not really recognizing that it's Jesus right off the bat, but eventually they do, because when they throw their nets out, they have this huge catch of fish. And we went through that whole scenario where they come and have breakfast on the beach with Jesus, and they sit around the fire, and finally, there's this moment that Jesus has with um, Peter, and we all know that uh, Peter denied Jesus three times after he said he wouldn't. And Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And he tells him to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. And we went through that and talked about the Greek. And I think I may have even said this wrong last week, and I want to apologize for that. Somebody called me on it, not in an ugly way. They were very sweet about it. But we talked about the Greek. And at the first, you know, there's different, at least four different words in the Greek language for love. We just have one. And we know we mean it different, but in the Greek language. So the first time Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, that's the highest form of love. And he says, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know, more of a brotherly type love. And he asks him again, do you agape? He goes, Jesus, you know I phileo you. And then the last time I think I said agape, but Jesus actually said, Peter, do you phileo me? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I phileo you. I don't have that all-encompassing love that I wanted to have. I thought I had it. And Jesus says, I know that. But I haven't given up on you. You're going to be a part of the plan that's going forward. This has been a plan the whole time. And even though you failed, and all the other disciples are listening to this conversation, but they know they too had failed. They had not lived up to what they thought. They misunderstood Jesus' kingdom. And we've been talking about Jesus talking about, you know, in order to win, you've got to lose. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be a servant of all. And Jesus is trying to explain all this to them. And he's trying to talk about the suffering that goes along with being a disciple. And it took them a while to get it. But after they've seen the cross and after they've seen him resurrected, they finally grasp that. So I want to move on this week. And I want to look, we looked at John's gospel last week and some of the after the resurrection, what's going on there. And I want us to look at Luke's gospel today, and we're going to look at chapter 24. But before that, I want to share something. Uh, a lot of y'all have heard of Tim Keller. He preached at a church in New York, Redeemer Presbyterian, retired recently, but has written a lot of uh, very great books, uh, has great stories, was a great preacher. Um, but he says this in speaking of J.R.R. Tolkien, which many of y'all know wrote The Hobbit and a lot of those books, and they've been made into movies. But listen to what he says. He said, do you know what the word gospel means? And when we hear the word gospel, what does that mean? Good news. That's right. We understand that. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and resurrected and brought us the Holy Spirit. But he says, it means literally the joy news. J.R.R. Tolkien says there's a kind of story that brings us unbelievable joy. He says these stories always have a certain kernel to them. There's always some incredibly hopeless situation, and victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. But how? Always through someone who comes in and whose weakness turns out to be strength. Someone whose defeat turns out to be victory. He says it's those kind of stories that just seem to bring us joy. And he calls them 
you catastrophes. Now, obviously, he writes about these in his books, doesn't he? If you've ever read his book, that's, that's the way it works. But that's an interesting term, you catastrophe. And he says, do you know what the word you catastrophe means? It means the joyful catastrophe, the tragedy that turns out to actually be a triumph. The sacrifice that turns out to bring joy. He said, however, there's a eucatastrophe of the eucatastrophes. And there is a story in all of the stories. He believes there's a bass string to the human heart. And these stories can be can kind of make it to reverberate a little bit, but it can't pluck it. Y'all, y'all have seen somebody play a bass guitar, right? Like in our second service, we got a guy, and I love to watch the bass guy. They just pluck that. And so he says there's something in our heart that joy makes that do. But he goes on to say that the gospel story is the only story that will pluck that string so that the whole heart never stops reverberating and vibrating with joy. The reason it will reverberate is this is the reality to which all the other stories point. It happened. It really happened. There really is a hero who defeats the villain. There really is Jesus. The word gospel means the joy news. Joys. It's real. And you have to have it. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And you think about the joy that he had in his heart. He wrote these, these stories that captivate kids and adults for years and years. And you know J.R.R. Tolkien was also a friend with C.S. Lewis. And he was one of those guys that they met together as they taught in universities and they met together. And uh, for a long time, C.S. Lewis was a skeptic. But J.R.R. Tolkien was one of those ones who sat and talked with C.S. Lewis and helped bring him to Christianity, and it's really a neat story. If you hadn't read that before, there's uh, really a neat story. But I want us to consider this joy of Jesus that, that Keller share, shares with us through J.R.R. Tolkien's words. It is the joy that Luke consistently wrote about in his gospel message. We see that throughout his, his, um, his gospel message. And Luke, although he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, he certainly became a disciple of Jesus later on and was able to write this and the book of Acts. But in Luke 2, that we usually read during Christmas, we look to Luke to give us a lot of background on the birth of Christ. We don't find it in every gospel, but we do find it in Matthew and in Luke. And we know that when you look at that, you consistently see it. You remember, when the shepherds hear the angel... He says, I bring you what? Good news of what? Say it. Great joy, right? Great joy. That's what, that will be to all people. And the shepherds, again, it's at, at Christmas time, we always go, why the shepherds? Of all the people that the angel should have come to, he came to this you know, young um, lady named Mary and Joseph. Why did they get chosen? And why did the shepherds, who weren't even allowed to really have... Uh, credibility if they were to uh, testify in court. They weren't looked at highly, but they see that the angel came to them and says, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And they were skeptical. Is this really happening? They were scared when they saw this. Is this really happening? Angels, God is speaking to us through angels. We've heard of the prophets and how he spoke to them, but why us? Why do we get this news? They were a bit, a bit skeptical, but they were invited to go and find Mary and the Joseph, Mary and Joseph and the baby who will be wrapped in clothes and they're in a manger. And it said they went and they saw and they heard just as they had been told. And so it, Luke's gospel of great joy starts out with the joy news. So this baby bringing joy news, a baby seemingly helpless, without any strength, in complete weakness and dependency, how is this going to bring about victory? It doesn't seem like that's the way it works. And interestingly, as we read in Luke's account of the resurrection of Jesus, the same theme continues of this 
joyful news. Again, unexpected. All the disciples saw Jesus dead on the cross. He was dead. If they weren't physically there, they heard John, who was there, and some of the women who were there. We saw them pull Jesus off the cross dead. We saw them put him in the tomb dead. He's dead. I don't know what's going to go on next. He talked about this kingdom. He talked about all this that was going to take place. But now where are we? And so again, Jesus was dead on the cross. No more expectations from him as a dead man. He's in the grave. But then triumph in the midst of tragedy enters as the stone was rolled away. And the women, Luke tells us, as they go to the tomb that day, they ask. As they get there, they see an an angel there. And they say, why? Two men, two angels. And they ask them, why do you look for, in this great phrase, why do you look for the living among the dead? Asking them that question. He is not here. He has risen. Don't you remember? He told you this. You should be joyful. So they went away. So this news become, becomes, as J.R. talks about, the eucatastrophe of the eucatastrophes. It's that good of news. And the disciples, Luke tells us, they go back and said, the, the tomb is empty. We saw a couple of angels and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, just as he told you. And the, the disciples look at the women and think, what, are, what they're talking about is nonsense. We know he's dead. Everybody knows he's dead. He's been dead for three days. What are you talking about? But Luke tells us that Peter runs to the grave and his mourning would turn to joy as he looks and sees there's the cloth that were wrapped that Jesus was wrapped in, but Jesus is not there. Just as you had been told, he is risen. And then Luke tells us this famous um, encounter on the road to Emmaus. And we're not going to read that this morning, but some of you may have read that, and I would encourage you to read that in Luke 24. But there's a couple of disciples that eventually encounter this joy. Jesus runs into these two people who are talking about what has happened, and they don't recognize who Jesus is. And apparently Jesus could kind of hide his identity in resurrected form. And they're talking about these things. And finally Jesus says to them that the Christ had to suffer these things. Don't y'all understand this? How did you not recognize this knowing the Old Testament scriptures? And he talks about his, he said, Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, tragedy, in order to enter his glory, which is the triumph? And then Jesus explains, it says, Starting with Moses and all the prophets, that the eucatastrophe of all eucatastrophes was the plan from the very beginning. This isn't something that he had to, God had to shift gears on. This is what was going to happen from the very beginning. And y'all just didn't quite get it. You didn't see it. And I wish you had. So Luke closes his gospel with Jesus telling the disciples that they are a part and have always been a part of the plan. So we're going to look at that, Luke chapter 24, and I think it's going to be on the screen for us. And we're going to look at verses 45 through 53. And listen to what, there it is. Listen to what, what Luke says, or Jesus Um, says actually through Luke. And we're going to start in verse 45. So then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Um, This part where he's walking with those two disciples and he says, then he unlocked the scriptures and started with Moses and all the prophets and told them about all this. Ravi Zacharias, many of you have heard of him, he talks about of all the sermons that I've heard about that have been famous over the years. And you can insert any preacher you want to insert. He goes, of all the sermons I wish I could hear, he goes, this is the sermon I would want to hear of all sermons that those two disciples heard on that Emmaus road. Starting with Moses, he explained everything. Can you imagine what that was like? 
But anyway, so we're going to go on to uh, chapter 24, verse 45, and listen to what Jesus says. So he opened their minds so that they could understand. And he told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Now, it would take them quite a while to understand this all nations thing. They nodded their head, but they didn't quite understand that the forgiveness of sins, that what Jesus did was for all people. It took them a while, but they would get it. But he says, preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things because they were eyewitness. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from an on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. Again, there it is. Luke says this is the theme. When you encounter Jesus, when you encounter that catastrophe of all catastrophes, the response is joy. This shouldn't be. This should be a tragedy, but instead it is a triumph and it brings great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So this is Luke's version of the Great Commission, basically. But I want to I um, talk about this a little bit as we, we also know that Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts that tells us, well, what happened next? After Jesus talked about all this, you're part of the plan. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to come upon you, and you're going to have this power, and then you're going to go out, starting in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then into all of the world, and you're going to share as eyewitnesses what you have experienced, this great joy. And so let's look at, we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And so here it is, Luke writing again. And, you know, it, I, am, I am really fascinated by the fact that Luke was, um, we, a, lot of, a lot of you know that he was a doctor. He had that, and you could imagine um, what that was like in those days, okay? A lot different than our days. But how did somebody like him as a doctor have the time to write all of this? That amazes me. But the Holy Spirit worked through him and told not only the gospel, but of the history of the church, which is so important. So he writes, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up in heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And that's where we get, well, how long was Jesus around after? This is where we get it. Luke did his research and found out Jesus was 40 days. Okay, So that's where we get that. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we celebrate on the day of Pentecost, which will really be 10 more days after that 40 days, 50 days. So then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, I really wonder what Jesus' reaction was to this. You've seen me alive again. You thought it was all over, and now it's not over God's doing something powerful. He's going to do something. He's told you what he's going to do. You're going to be my witnesses of this. But they still, in the back of their minds, have this restore Israel. Restore Israel. That's what you've always promised through the prophets. That's what, the, that's what we've heard our whole lives. Are you going to do something? And Jesus, 
I don't think he's upset with them, but I think he realizes they don't quite understand yet about this losing to win thing. They don't cry. All they can see is the win. We want to know when the win's going to happen. And Jesus says, there's going to be a win ultimately, but there's a lot of losing that has to be done before that. And they don't quite understand this. And so Jesus said to them in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will, he goes back to this, you will receive power, and you need that power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And again, they hear Jerusalem and they hear Judea, but I bet when they hear, hear Samaria, they're like, what? What do you mean we're going to Samaria? What do you mean to the ends of the earth? And after this, he said, he was taken up before their, their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him Go into heaven. And I think this is interesting. It follows that joyful reminder that Luke uses throughout his writings. He uses angels to say, hey, good news of great joy is coming at the birth of Christ, at the resurrection of Christ. And now, why are you standing there? There's a part that you have in this. God has you as part of his plan. He's told you, you are going to be eyewitness to this, and you're going to go starting here and into the world. And that's what we've done. Now, you realize we are part of the plan. We have a part of being witnesses. Well, we're not eyewitnesses, but we are witnesses from the eyewitnesses in this first century who passed this down and passed this down. And because of people who believe that and we're eyewitnesses, we have God's word, we have churches, we have the opportunity to know the truth, but we have a huge responsibility in getting that message out. And it needs to be a message of joy, not just deadness. It needs to be joy. And just like the two men and angels, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why do you stand looking into the sky? Do something. Go. Be the witnesses that God has given you the opportunity to be. And Jesus most certainly will be back. And the implication is most certainly there as well. Go tell the good news of great joy. Get out there. Tell people. Share the eucatastrophe of all eucatastrophes. Because there was this catastrophe before there was the victory. And people need to hear that. So we are not the eyewitness, but we are indeed witnesses of what those early followers did eyewitness. Now, what are we going to do with it? Do we let the tragedies of this life keep us from telling folks that there is still triumph and tragedy? And I'll be honest sometimes. I get overwhelmed with prayer requests. Do y'all get overwhelmed with prayer requests? When we sit down on Monday morning with all the prayer requests we get, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. You can ask James. There's, there's just, you know, it's like, wow, this many people wrote down something, and it's a friend, a family member, somebody that they love and care about, and it feels overwhelming. But sometimes in that, we need to understand those things are awful, but they're a part of the, of, of the sinful world, the fallen world that we live in. But there is ultimately triumph even in these tragedies. And how do we respond to that? How do people see that you and I respond? Do we have a hope beyond that? And we should have that. Those early disciples, it was obvious that even in the midst of tragedy, there was something beyond that that they grasped hold of that they didn't before. People said they're different now. They were scared before. They ran and hid. Now they're not running and hiding. They're telling people they're not scared of this anymore. 
They could not be the same again, even in the tragedies of their lives going forward. And they would have tragedies in their lives, but they could never be the same. N.T. Wright, um, great theologian and written a lot of a great books, said this. He goes, We are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. I want to read that again because I think about it. It reminded me of how I need to understand. I think I can figure all this out. John said in his prayer this morning, we think we're going to go our own way and we can do that and we'll call on God when we need Him. God, I need your help on this, but you, you can deal with everybody else during the week. If I need you, I'll call you. But N.T. Wright is basically saying, we are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. And I said a few weeks ago, the thing that scares us more than anything else in the world is death, isn't it? That's what we're most afraid of. And Jesus says, I have taken care of that. That's not your, shouldn't be your biggest fear. It should be the sin that separates you from God. And I've taken care of that on the cross. And I've taken care of death as well. That cannot separate you from God. So we have to rely on the God who raises the dead. And so even in these tragedies of our life, we need to understand that God can do something triumphal even in those, those difficult situations. So the, the school right down the street here that, that we've been doing, the God Squad, and uh, we... Um, you know, been having people that go mentor there on, on a weekly basis. They had a young teacher, 31, didn't show up for work the other day. They found her dead in her home. Tragedy died. And I'm going, wow, the principal shared that with me this week. And I thought, man, what a difficult thing. At the end of the year, you got five weeks left, and all these kids who love their teacher, you have to go to all those kids and tell them that your teacher is not going to be back ever. But I... Thursday night, we had the lacrosse team from um, North, uh, Northgate High School was here doing a little banquet, and I ran into one of the teachers there. I did not even know her son played lacrosse there, but I bumped into her in the hallway and I said, hey, I'm so sorry to hear that y'all lost one of your teachers this week. And she says, I know, she was such a great lady. She was so young. And so, but she goes, I went to the funeral today, and all of a sudden, y'all, her face changed from this catastrophe to this joy. She goes, oh, it was so wonderful. The kids wrote all these things about her, and it was read at the funeral, and we didn't even know. We loved her, but we had no idea how much of an impact she had on these kids, and she just went on and on about how great the funeral was and how much joy it brought her, even in the midst of this tragedy, and I thought, God, there's a reason that I ran in her tonight, because it goes right along with what Luke is telling us. There is triumph even in the middle of tragedies, and as I look out over here, at faces that I've known for a long time. Y'all know what I'm talking about. A lot of y'all have dealt with tragedies, but there's been something amidst those that has come in triumph. And you know you have the hope of that. I want to close this morning with a story that I've shared before, but I think it's been a while. Um, uh, there was a, a writer was talking about a young man, uh, he said that he knew, named uh, Philip. And he says he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think this a young man he knew from uh, his church. And he says, I was in a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I noticed that this young man from our church uh, was working the counter. And I knew he was a part of our young adult ministry, and I also knew that he just graduated from Harvard. And I'm thinking, why in the world is this guy who just graduated from Harvard working at McDonald's? And he says, I greeted him and managed to get him 
um, to break free for a, a coffee with me during his break. And he says, what are you doing here? I asked, knowing that a, a Harvard master's degree student usually don't aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. He goes, well, I graduated in May, but I still, after four months, have not been able to, to find a job. So I said to myself, I need to have some income to pay bills, so this is where I've ended up, at least for now. And he said, I said, sorry to hear that. It must be hard. And he says, no, 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 please don't be sorry for me. He said, God has me here for a purpose. This place has given me some awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on a shift that includes, listen to this, I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? So he laughed and so did I, but he said, I was so impressed with this young man that this is not where he aspires to be, obviously, long term. But in this moment, he realizes that God has him here and he's looking for opportunities to share the good news and he sees that. Obviously, he understands that God has called us to be part of the plan, to share the, great, the good news of great joy, and he's doing that. So I wonder about us sometimes when we find us in an opportunity, my first thing to do is complain. I'm a complainer. Why is this happening? Do you do this? Why is this happening? It's not fair. This shouldn't happen to me. And then when I step back and I listen to stories of so many of you and so many other people, I go, wow, it could be a lot worse, but what is God trying to do in and through this situation that's ultimately going to be a triumph? Not to be fakey about it and try to find something that's not there, but really, ultimately, if we believe in the resurrection, if we believe in this catastrophe of all catastrophes, then we know God will get us through it. He will teach us something. He will make us stronger. He's using this to grow us into who He always created us to be. And that's what Luke is trying to tell us, and I think that's what he's telling us. And so we have the opportunities, just like the disciples did, to be witnesses Maybe not eyewitnesses, but witnesses of the eyewitnesses of what God is doing in our life. So when that lady, and you know what she was doing, y'all? The reason I bumped into her, because somebody spilled something in the floor, and she was in the janitor's closet trying to clean it up. Isn't that how God works? That's how God works. And in the midst of that, he brought joy in the midst of something that was, was, was certainly very tragic. So this morning... I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you have that joy. I hope people see in us that joy, that there is triumph beyond the tragedy and the resurrection of, of all things tells us that. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today that you've gone through a lot and maybe you've become angry with God. Maybe you want to push God out. But I'll say this, most of the time when we're angry with God, if we really didn't believe who God was, we wouldn't be angry with Him, would we? We know there's some sort of a relationship there with him or you wouldn't be angry with him. The reason you're angry with him is that there's a relationship and something didn't go to your expectations. So that's a good place to start. I see throughout the whole Bible there were people who were very close to God that came to points and seasons in their life where they were angry with God. But God helped them get through that and helped them move on. So today, maybe there's somebody here today that needs to step forward and say, I want to... I want to start on that path where I say, God, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord, even in the midst of the tragedies, because we all have them. And maybe there's somebody who wants to join a church, and we try to be with each other through the, the tragedies that, that we suffer in life. We try to 
hold each other up. And I see that again and again and again with the church people here. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a community that does that. So maybe you're looking for a church home and we offer that as well. So Mike's going to come and lead us. And if you have a decision to make this morning, we ask that you walk forward at this time.